0: evening everyone i am your host jason miles on another episode of this is revolution podcast if you're new to the channel please like and subscribe if you're enjoying what you see make sure to hit that notification bell as we're constantly adding new episodes doing cross streams with other channels and adding additional programming also before we start i want to remind people that tickets are on sale for the book launch event for my upcoming release on everyday analysis i was a teenage anarchist about how the culture of deconstruction and authenticity work in conjunction with one another to neutralize any sort of movement. The live event is going to be what I call the coolest backyard punk show, but not a punk show. Uh, there's going to be people from some legendary hardcore hard, punk and metal bands. Uh, we're going to have a panel discussion and a QA and a and a chill mingling. Think of it as a very small, intimate meet and greet. Chris Contos from Machine Head and Forbidden and Attitude Adjustment is going to... Going to be there, Craig that played in Death, and of course Forbidden, May May God, and then Rick Henault from Exodus is going to be there, and plus there's some other people that haven't confirmed who's going to be there, so it's going to be a fun, fun time, a lot of great stories will definitely be told, I've known these guys for some time, uh, a lot of what they said definitely um, was an inspiration for the book, that being said, let's get to the co-hosts you guys missed him you kept mentioning him you're like where is he at well here he is the man from miami the man of the mau mau hour my co-host my home and my dog he is the pascal robert <laughs> jesus sorry oh my god Hello.
1: Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, to Jason Miles. How are you? Feels like it's been.
0: I'm okay. You, I'm okay. I'm definitely, I'm, I'm a lot happier when things move faster. She is the faceless voice of reason on this show. You may know her as my comrade in silliness in the champagne room. She is M. Toussaint.
2: Hello, hello. So good to be here tonight, really.
0: I think you guys uh, are going to enjoy our guest. What do you think?
1: Sounds like a good, good guest. I enjoyed this book. I enjoyed our green screen room conversation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, are you happy to be back, Pascal? It's been a minute. People were were uh, wondering where you were. I didn't
1: feel like I was gone, quite honestly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh
0: really? You weren't gone long enough? There you
2: go.
0: <laughs> just kidding. A kid. A kid. A kid. I told people you were out you were writing. I was like, Pascal's busy writing.
1: I was, you know, you guys were doing the Halloween themed month and you know, just like mm-hmm. not my shtick.
0: You know, you got you got some time off. Indeed. Who, doesn't, who doesn't appreciate Who doesn't appreciate time off right? Indeed indeed I definitely appreciate time off But um, I, I, We were joking uh, The other day that we finally Made it because now a uh, publicist Hit us up about authors so I think that's Pretty cool and I was actually Really excited um, When this publicist hit us up um, We can't Deny the fact that we're in ecological collapse and we can't deny um global militarism's role in that through arms manufacturing arms distribution and its massive global military presence the us is the largest polluter of greenhouse gases in the world recycling electric cars boycotting amazon or individual consumer choices can't save us from what some call the climate apocalypse Our guest has written a book explaining capitalism's role in the climate crisis and what we can do to stop it. Charles Durber is a professor of sociology at Boston College and the author of over 20 books. His latest book we'll be discussing is Dying for Capitalism, How Big Money Fuels Extinction and What We Can Do About It. Wherever you are listening and watching, there are links in the description to the book. Please welcome our guest, Dr. Charles Durber. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today
3: hey it's great to be here thanks for having me
0: i hope you appreciate the applause i
3: did i always do <laughs>
0: <laughs> well you know i've wanted to get you on this show for some time because there's a book you wrote about the left oh four years ago
3: yeah yeah welcome to the revolution yeah yeah right before covid that came out yeah yeah
0: Uh, A lot of uh, sentiments in that book we definitely echo on this show, Um, so I I want to say this is actually kind of an honor and privilege to have you on here. Um, You have a great critique of capitalism and its role in environmental collapse, Um, but what is the socialist response to the climate? China, a communist country, is a major polluter. The Soviet Union had disastrous issues with pollution. What would be the socialist response to climate crisis in your opinion?
3: Well, I mean, let's distinguish between socialist activists and thinkers and governments that call themselves socialists. But if you're saying what do I think a good socialist ought to be mm-hmm. um, thinking about um, the environmental crisis?" let me say first of all, I think what's a little unusual about my book is that it people who will worry about the climate or about militarism or about economic, you know, class power, corporate power, and so forth. They tend to sort of look at these things on different tracks and um, analyze them somewhat separately. And um, Jason, you may remember from my other book, my my sort of brain tends to constantly look for connections and mm-hmm. intersections between major social political problems mm-hmm. and So this book is what, um, if you looked at the first chapter, you'd see a big picture of a triangle. Mm -hmm. I call the extinction triangle, and at the top of that triangle is capitalism, and on both sides, one down one side is environmental death, of which climate change is one big part, and on the other side is military death, which involves nuclear war and other, you know, mass um, weapon-based destruction, Mm -hmm. and then the two. At the bottom climate change and war are also interconnected and also fuel each other in ways that are often neglected so at the top of this triangle and this goes to your question about what a socialist would think is that i'm arguing that our economic system and the sort of you know built-in profit um mania that drives all capitalist systems is at the root of both all our major existential crises, the climate crisis, uh, other environmental crises around biodiversity, uh, and um, even pandemics are in a form a form of um, environmental um, you know crisis linked to um, to capitalism. And um, so a socialist would probably look at my book and say it's about time, damn it, that connected the economic system to all, to all these other major catastrophic crises involving war, involving climate death, and would recognize that there's just no way that green technology or that peace movements are going to have any kind of um, major impact if they're not simultaneously educating people about the way in which the economic system is driving so many of these problems and how um, you really, you know, it's kind of oxymoronic to say green capitalism because capitalism is a system that inherently, you know, prioritizes profit and a sort of an insatiable appetite for, you know, Production of um, production of consumer goods at the expense of environment. It's uh, the market is blind. It kind of externalizes the cost of environmental damage to the rest of us. Um, an, exter- you know, an externalized cost is one that the market players who produce it don't have to worry about if a factory pollutes downstream it externalizes the cost of that pollution to the people living downstream who are getting sick from it and you know if you macro you know put that in a macro picture capitalism simply treats you know, worldwide pollution as an external cost. They don't have to worry about the the big companies because they don't have to pay for it. They they externalize that cost and put it on the rest of us. The same is true, by the way, of the wars that are fought for oil, which help, you know, help drive climate change. And for Mm -hmm. all the other uh, reasons that the United States goes to war are linked to the economy. And so again, War is just another externalized cost, an externality uh, to the system. And the sad thing is that people don't, you know, because capitalism is so deeply embedded in the way that most Americans learn to think about, they just don't imagine there's any real alternative to capitalism. Um, they they sort of accept the idea that technology or other kinds of you know changes can can do the job when so many of the problems that we're dealing with are profoundly linked, inextricably linked to capitalism. And then the book sort of lays out why that's true and also lays out why as, as depressing as it may sound to say that something as big as capitalism has to be addressed in order to deal with climate change and militarism, the book lays out a kind of historical you know, narrative of hope in the sense that, I mean, not that I'm wildly optimistic, but if you go back to the abolitionist movement, um, Mm -hmm. people said, you know, prior to the Civil War, abolitionism was a relatively small group of activists. And people said to them, get real. You know, slavery has been for here forever, and you'll never, ever get rid of a slave system. And the abolitionists they didn't, of course, completely abolish slavery, but they made a major dent in the slave system in the South. And so we, we look at, I mean, we don't want to leave people. I noticed one of your commenters here on the right, I'm looking at it, said, what a depressing subject to be talking about. And it is depressing. Mm-hmm. So we put some attention in the book. There's a conversation between an activist in 2060 and activist today about how they found that narrow path that moved the world uh, through all the entangled dangers that we're confronting right now, involving war in the Middle East and mm-hmm. Ukraine and all over the place uh, and the environmental crisis, which just keeps displacing people uh, and making um, life impossible for so many people um, to the poor color, people of color. Um, and so the book is about a depressing subject but it maintains a kind of sense of the possibilities and um uses historical examples to say okay. do not give up because there's too much at stake number 1 i mean for younger people in particular i mean this is life and death there's no question that this is the greatest emergency ever created in human history by far and because uh, we're right on the precipice of complete you know destruction not just of human life but you know, animal life and uh, all life on the planet. And so we can't joke around. And it's really important to have clarity about what are the big, you know, social, economic, political forces that are driving this. And um, so that you can get on the path to making a quick, major effort to, to try to save save life while we still have
0: time. And, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, militarism, which I think is something that I don't see people talk that much about when we think about climate catastrophe as resources are dwindling and we're seeing people, you know, build walls and, and literally we're seeing large migrations of people flow due to, I'm you know, shortages in climate and, you know, shortages in water. Do you think we're going to see, you know, realistically more militaristic actions as resources bec- become less and less? walls become higher and higher built people you know we have to get this group of people out
3: yeah, absolutely you you hit the nail on the head up uh, a lot of this book is about the interaction between climate change and militarism which almost nobody talks about but as you just in the ways that you were suggesting jason it's really really important because as cl- i mean climate change drives war and war drives climate change climate change drives war in some of the way you're saying about i mean people about Sixty percent of people in the world lived about 50 miles from the ocean. Mm -hmm. And as the climate changes and the ice melts, the ocean sea level rises. And meanwhile, you know, hurricanes, floods, droughts are making more and more land uninhabitable. So you have, as you're suggesting, millions and millions of people facing, you know, uninhabitable, um, their homes. The places where they live are not going to continue to be inhabitable. That forces mass migrations. You know, competition among people within nations and across nations trying to survive. Um, it creates this kind of deadly competition for land and areas where you can grow food and where it's not too hot um, to survive. Um, and so, the the onslaught of climate disaster is a recipe. For ongoing war, I mean, many of the recent wars, wars, mm-hmm. um, you know, like in Rwanda, in Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, many many people are currently tracing um, many of the current wars, including wars in the Middle East, up, to a component of climate change that's very important. On the other end of that, you know who the biggest? Do you know what institution is the largest emitter of carbon in the in the world?
0: Is it the U.S. military?
3: you are exactly right. Pentagon Pentagon actually in its annual report of security threats, it does say that climate change is actually the, it's been saying for a number of years, is the greatest national security threat, Uh, which is interesting for them to say, because what they don't tell us is that the military itself, just as you say, Jason, Mm -hmm. is the absolute largest driver of climate change. Um, Pentagon, One, it fights for oil, it fights for our right to, you know, ruin the planet with, um, you know, burning more and more oil. And um, what I call the carbon industrial complex is tightly intertwined with the military industrial complex. The carbon industrial complex, which I discuss in the book, Mm -hmm. is the concentration of big oil companies and other huge fossil fuel companies who, you know, they could. I mean, they're, they're an incredibly um, sociopathic, lying group of corporations. They're, they're like the tobacco companies back. You know, They knew long ago that what they were doing was destroying possibilities of life, and they just lied over and over again. One of the interesting things just that happened today, I think, is that the California Attorney General, that's, you guys are in California, right? I'm
0: in Cal, uh, well, I was in California, I'm in Mexico yeah. now. I'm
3: so the California U. Attorney General, who's an interesting guy, yeah. is now suing the carbon industrial complex, essentially, yeah. uh, big oil and, um, and other big, you know, fossil fuel energy companies, for uh, decades of lying about mm-hmm. what they're doing. They're continuing to say, oh, we see a green capitalism in the future, we're gonna diversify energy. Uh, the, the truth is, that they're basically uh, committed. And we know this from emails and texts that they've been able to dig up. They want to get every bit of profit they can out of the, you know, the, the, you know, the enormous infrastructure of oil that they built up uh, over the history of capitalism. And um, there's still enough oil, you know, under the oceans and um, you know, in the land that, that, and so forth, that they're going to keep burning oil until we all burn up. And um, so, you know people have to wake up to all the different ways in which um you know capitalism actually might have been able to at least grow without oil it was you know the original uh, energy grid in the british uh, early industrial capital like in london were um, driven by water-powered energy that is steam engines that were water-powered but the the capitalists felt like water was too politically risky to base um their energy on because they thought people need water and they see it as part of the commons in their everyday life so they were afraid that if they relied too heavily on water that people would basically take the water away and you know make it a public good which of course it is and um you can't have public goods in capitalism so they shift to coal and oil and it's interesting actually that they shifted from coal to oil because of war, I mean, it was really the demands of war, particularly in World War I, there was a massive shift from coal toward oil because, you know, aviation and, um, you know, the tanks and the, the sort of kind of warfare that got, inter- you know, entrenched in World War I and then in World War II required enormous amounts of oil. So that's another connection people don't really um, get much education about, about the whole rise of capitalism could have developed in a somewhat different way, but the role of militarism, which was endemic, you know, central to capitalists gaining new resources and uh, meant that capitalists were always going to fight and for that they needed more oil. And so there's this ongoing historical story which links together the rise of capitalism, the use of fossil fuels and the use of military force um, to basically keep the planet A profitable resource for big, you know, wealthy people who run big
1: companies of the world. Pascal? Yeah, I wanted to ask you a question because this is a very interesting subject matter. When talking about the role of capitalism and the way in which it it, uh, is a next to climate change, response to the developing global south, particularly Africa, who has not yet been industrialized, but requires some level of development. To be able to move itself out of, I would even say it's not even agrarian, almost a kind of like a kind of minimal rich but economically poor situation. Is there any way we can see a development of the third world or the, the undeveloped global south that would not necessarily put the global climate ecosystem in jeopardy?
3: Well, that's a really, really important question because, um, you know, the global South didn't create climate change I mean, they were the victim of, they, are, they were and are the victim of both the militarism and the climate consequences of capitalism. So, yeah, absolutely. We have to have the solution to all of these crises is bringing the entire, the entire world is tied together because we're all going to die eventually from, from the, Climate change and militarism—that is just becoming, you know, every day uh, greater threat. So we need to massively divert the capital, the, the money stocks of the world, from these huge corporations which are monopolizing so much of it, into particularly in the advanced, uh, the more wealthy uh, North countries of the North that caused all these problems, and take all that money that's currently being put into the military industrial complexes and into the carbon industrial complexes and making them rich at the expense of the rest of us and divert all that money into basically green sort of sustainable development models for the global south. I mean, as I said, capitalism could have developed without carbon energy. And today, the global south um, is, you know, in fact, it, it is one because. You know, so the price of solar and wind and other forms of energy is of of sustainable energy has gone down a lot. And the costs of fossil fuel are so much greater um, that uh, it's really, I think, if you can divert the money away from these large corporate, you know, empires that control it and are trying to maintain a kind of capitalism, a global capitalism that's keeping the global South poor. At the expense of, after all, what is globalization? It's a way of essentially making the global South the, you know, the sort of um, exploited labor source of wealth in the global North. And they're doing at at the cost of the the people working in the in as sort of in the global labor force in sweatshops and, um, you know, in very very desperate conditions. And it's it's imposing. Enormous environmental and military costs to maintain the governments uh, that are keeping those companies there. So, yeah, we need a global. That's why the the as in you know it's interesting when um, Stephen Douglas was uh, um, leading the abolitionist struggle. Um, he he was very global in his abolitionist. He recognized that to deal with capitalism and s- slavery in the United States. You had to develop a global struggle against it, and that is true, you know, in you know multiple times in the struggle we're facing right now. There's no way, in my view, of getting the global North to really address all of these problems by itself. Um, it has to really enlist the global South, and the global South is not going to be able to join unless there's enormous amounts of funds um, being redirected to basically as you as you were saying um to develop the economies of the global south in a sustainable way um where you know all of this capital which is stored in um, big oil and um you know big military uh is redirected and you can do that in many ways there's ways to tax um you know the enormous the daily flow of capital in the world, is trillions of dollars. Even a small tax on that money that was re-diver- you know, redirected toward the global south could play an enormous role in that. If you if you made the military budget down to what you really need for any kind of reasonable security, you could take trillions of dollars a year uh, and redirect that into development of the global south, as well into you know the working classes of the north. Um, so. I mean it's it's almost easy if you think about you know there are 10 billionaires in the united states who have more wealth than about half of all the america you know american working class about 150 million people the the concentration of wealth in the world is so you know is so insanely concentrated in a small global capitalist class that any kind of reasonable Um, solidarity that can be developed in a global movement has access to enormous, enormous amounts of capital that could be reinvested in the working classes of the North and the whole entire global South. But you're right. I don't see a solution to this problem uh, of any kind, unless this is a global movement that takes the development of the global
1: South very, very seriously. Professor Durbin, one thing I found interesting about your book, is that you use the analogy of the abolitionist movement as a paradigm or framework for the kind of movement that will be necessary to uh, change, amend, or cease the functions of uh, global uh, global climate change in capitalism today? One of the things I found interesting when you were making that that analogy in your book is that you know we do realize that the abolitionary the abolitionist movement ended up in requiring a civil war. To right. right. slavery in the United States That's true. And yeah. The second part I, I would like to add is that what does exactly abolitionism look like in a practical sense of creating the mechanism necessary to cha- challenge these forces of capital?
3: Yeah. Well, these are not easy questions, but we do spend a lot of time. Thank you for them. Um You know, we are dealing with a kind of modern abolitionism. We need to abolish fossil fuels. We need to abolish basically the entire national security military apparatus. And we need to abolish the basic um, economic systems. I mean, and this is not, I mean, I don't say this lightly. I mean, I'm not saying just throwing these ideas around as um, sexy lefty ideas. I mean, these are just fundamentals because we're in, I can't highlight enough. We're in the greatest emergency that history has ever faced we're we're tottering on the precipice of survival. This is the pressing part of it. you and so we have no choice, particularly young people who want to live out their lives. They know this I, my students know this. they take climate change and violence and uh, all the you know jobs and inequality they take it very seriously because they know their lives are on the line so. We we talk about abolitionism because it's a historical example of where people who were told, get real, you'll never change slavery. Slavery has been around forever. It was a large system that people said was impossible to change. And a relatively small group of people found a strategy over a number of years to build alliances across very surprising, um, between reformists and revolutionaries, between cultural activists and economic activists, peace activists. Um, you know, you had a really enormous variety of people, uh, you know, Douglas uh, the former slave who really became one of the leaders of the American Abilapish Muslim was an understood culture very well. He was the most photographed person in the world in the 19th century. And I just mentioned that because, Um, On the one hand, he could make a certain kind of alliance with a white moderate like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, one of the Mm -hmm. best-selling books. And that was an interesting, you know, sort of way of building solidarity between cultural, middle-class cultural, um, you know, activists who were quite reformist and then people who were much more radical. I mean, William Lloyd Garrison, a white socialist um, and and, uh, peacenik. Um, found common ground with John Brown, a militant, violent revolutionary. So I think one of the things we do is we look at abolitionism as an example, not that it has all the answers for our current struggle, which is another abolitionist struggle, but to say that if you look at the way they built their movement, refusing to accept the idea that a large system change, like a change in slavery, a slave system, which was totally entangled. The the southern slave system was, of course, totally funded and entangled with the um, northern capitalist system. So we have in our history an example of where people refuse to say, that we could not uh, you know we could not build movements that made large system changes of the kind that we desperately need today, so in the last few chapters of the book, we do a kind of conversation as activists who are aware of this history think through how you build these what I call universalizing movements that tie together identity movements that build around race and gender with class movements that build around class, environment, and, um, you know, millet piece. Um, it's a very challenging, you know, sort of movement challenge. But, you know, and Jason mentioned my earlier book, I've written a lot about social movements. And the guy I wrote this book with, a guy named a South African mm-hmm. named Ren Mood-Liar, mm-hmm. um Grew up with the ANC and um, in a, you know dealing with a revolutionary situation in South Africa. He's a brilliant activist and intellectual. He edits the journal called Socialism and Democracy. You guys should get to know him and have him on the show as well. Um, um,
0: definitely hook it up.
3: Um, yeah, hooked up with him. He's you you would love him. He's a brilliant guy. He's a fabulous uh, organizer and he's a global. He's deeply involved with these global struggles uh, with, uh, you know, a different world as possible. And, you know, growing up in the struggle with the ANC against South African, um, you know, apartheid, he he just brings to the current struggles an incredibly, and it's really reflected in the book, an incredible integration of understanding of how economic class issues are tied in with racial issues. and anti-racist movements and the environment and peace and so forth. So the book is, you know, taking in a, a very big, you know, chewing off a lot. But I think we're offering at least a, an outline of a path that is difficult but is doable because we've seen examples in history where the ability to change systems that people have said are impossible to change have actually made surprising amounts of, of
0: transformation. <laughs> I, I do want to i do want to ask you about that because you bring up the abolitionist movement and and that's kind of a, an interesting thing to think about in the current context because you know, you're know you talking about someone like frederick Douglass that understood culture right. and the only person i can think of him you know maybe the panel would disagree with me uh, a kind of larger voice over the last i don't know maybe four or five years a person like ibrahim x Kendi which says kind of uh the problem is racism and we have anti-racism. And they're really, even though he kind of hints at a class analysis in the How to Be an Anti-Racism book, there really is no class analysis in right. that book. And the and the end-all be-all becomes, we just have to fix what's in the minds of, of white people to be anti-racist. So right. if you take a city like where I'm from in Richmond, California, um, the largest employer in that city is Chevron. And it's hard to tell Um, a city that is one of literally one of the most diverse cities in America, but also one of the most impoverished cities in America. If you are a black person with a decent job, uh, probably with a pension or at least a 401k at a place like Chevron, how do you disentangle someone like that from thinking that fossil fuels isn't the way since fossil fuels purchased your home and takes care of your family? Even though you know, there's problems when the factory catches on fire, which is quite common, apparently the retarded that puts out the fire has had devastating uh, uh, issues with people within the community, especially with cancer. Definitely many of the women in my family have, have succumbed to, to cancer as well because of that, and I believe Richmond might have been the first municipality uh, to sue a, a fossil fuel company. Um, but you know, like you were saying before with the attorney General in california, a lot of these these uh lawsuits don't really get the the attention they deserve um
3: yeah well, that's a,
0: yeah, yeah sorry, go, ahead, go ahead go ahead
3: no, no, Jason, finish up.
0: No, no. How, how do basically my thing is like, how do we have these conversations? It's a hard conversation to have with people about, hey, fossil fuels are bad. You kind of looked at with a side eye. I also worked for a time uh, cooking in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, a very good understanding of the dangers and, and horrible nature of fossil fuels out there. But you know, that's generational work that definitely has provided people with, with definitely a good life.
3: Well, you know, um, we were seeing that with um, coal miners who are. You know, resisting um, climate change, and you know, there's a solution that's not that difficult, and it's you. It's a, and this is not at all utopian. In Europe, you know, whenever you lay off, whenever companies lay off workers, they're under legal obligations to train, and these people are supported through public investment. Um, and t- retrained and insured a job. And you know, one of the few things that Biden did at the the first two years that was you know kind of useful was that he really poured a lot of money into you know in you know climate cap money around changing energy, so that coal miners would have an alternative to you know uh, history, the legacy of in their families of working in the coal mines was a proud revolutionary, actually, um, legacy for miners. I mean, some of the greatest American unionists were coal miners, like, um, Mm -hmm. you know, who started the Mm -hmm. CIO. So this is a crucially important um, issue. And I think, you know, there's not, it's not that hard to see though, that if you take people who are dependent um, on fossil fuel production and so forth, it's not that hard to see that if people are given Mm -hmm. both education Healthcare, and then critically, the kinds of skills for new jobs, and are assured those skills, as is legally required in Germany and in some of the Nordic European countries, and so forth. And now you're beginning to see, you know, and what's interesting in West Virginia, Mm -hmm. despite the toxic role of Joe Manchin there, and you know, (laughs) sort of, you're finding a a new generation of young coal mining um, families where the younger people are getting trained in you know, green energy uh, kinds of jobs, and it's shifting the culture and the economy of, you know, that tradition which is so heavily rooted in mining. So I think that there are, I mean, these are difficult problems, but they're problems, and then these are cultural as well as economic uh, because people get attached to these legacies of, um you know working culture which have defined their, their parents and their grandparents but you know we're seeing what in West Virginia today and in parts of Europe where people have been involved with um, you know fossil fuel all kinds of fossil fuel generation um, and whether it's timber or mining or uh, oil and so forth where you have to build a uh, this sort of capital again you have to get Public, You know, we say that the solution to so much of this is public goods, We're moving toward an economy of public goods, by which we mean money that's generated. After all, corporation op- is basically the largest form of uh, welfare in the world. Do you know what it's for? Hmm. It's corporate welfare. It's money that's generated from the taxpayers, which goes to subsidize enormous amounts of uh, corporate Uh, expansion depreciation Mm -hmm. um, all the ways in which corporations get uh, advantages are coming I mean this is one of the ironies of capitalist, you know quote free market ideology it's free market for the for the rest of us but it's large government for the big companies and big companies have sucked off and the the breasts of big government money for generations now and um, so what we need to do is say okay if we're going to have this kind of you know corporate welfare let's take that money which is really coming from the public it's public money and rather than generating for the profit of a tiny number of extremely wealthy people why not take public money and redirect it toward things that are in the interests of the general public who are paying out this money and so, if you want to get rid of oil company, you know, getting oil workers or coal miners committed to, you know, environmental, uh, environmentally sustainable economies, you take that public money that's going into oil and going into all the timber and, you know, all the horrific uh, companies that the public is subsidizing, and redirecting that money toward um, public goods, which in First and foremost is um, sustainable, you know, environmental policy as well as, you know, peace activity. And there's just literally trillions of dollars that is coming from the public and can be redirected both to the global south and to these new, new forms of development in the north as well.
0: Tucson. Um,
2: I just want to thank you again for being here oh. and for and for writing this book. Um it's it's right
3: up my alley. Oh great. <laughs> thank you. Well thank you. I mean I'm I'm really happy to hear that because you know it's a subject that is so desperate. I mean, you know, you look at what's happening right now in um you know, in Gaza and mm-hmm. you're thinking, My God, these two million people are going to be Subjected to genocide through it's really an American war because you know the war, the money that Israel has is all coming. It's there's the United States writes a four billion dollar check to Israel every year. That money is taken by Israel and put into. Money that goes back to the United States to, um, you know, Lockheed Martin and to Boeing and to General Dynamo, all the military companies, which then send them the weapons, which are American weapons back to fight Palestinians in this case in, in Gaza. And we're going to see, I mean, just I like you probably saw today that there was a bombing of a hospital, about a spell, about yeah. 500 people. That's nothing compared to the slaughter you're likely to see because, you know, and I mean, I mentioned this. Because it's just a horrifying sort of, um, you know, micro narrative of what's happening in the world, you know, where the United States is putting enormous amounts of capital into this kind of military and, and, and environmental and economic uh, warfare that's destroying people. And God, you're going to see in Gaza, My my prediction is that you're going to see over the next few weeks in Gaza, the kind of human loss of life. You know, these are kids. Most of Gaza, 60% of Gaza is under 15 years old. These are kids who are going to just be slaughtered. They have nowhere to go. They, mm-hmm. um, they've they already lost, you know, they don't have access to electricity. They have, you know, the, the exits have been closed off. Israelis are coming in from land, sea, air. Um, it's going to be a kind of little microcosm of extinction that is really a kind of mini-narrative of what the future of humanity might look like, where we're all trapped. I mean, Gaza is a prison where yep. people are trapped, and they you know, can't get out by land, air, or sea. The, you know Their exits have been closed. And that's the way it's going to feel like in the world. We're all trapped in this prison that's been set up by these billionaire companies, and we have no way exit. You know, I mean, Elon Musk says, well, we're going to get off the planet. You know, he's talking about developing SpaceX and moving to another planet. There's no planet that we can get to fast enough, given what's happening in the Earth. So we're all Gazans in a certain way right now. You know? We're all victims. We're all um, prisoners in a system that we have to mobilize, um, you know, with all our, you know, hearts and minds and, and solidarity, because there's just no joke. This is life and death. I mean, it's just so tra- I, I barely sleep these days because I think about what's going to happen uh, to these people in Gaza, and I think it's hard to sleep, you know.
0: That's why I asked the question earlier, like, is this the future? And and I don't know if you yeah. agree with me, Pascal, when we talk about uh, a part of the world that's not, you know, that little strip right there where all those people are, are kind of entrapped, they're not producing anything, it's not resource-rich, you kind of have, and probably in the eyes of Israeli power and power in general, elites in general, a disposable people, right? Right. All right. and exactly. the right. easiest way to make people sound disposable was once the moniker of terrorism is, is was on them and that moniker of terrorist has been on the people of Palestine and a great job through through uh you know the u.s culture industry and you know, probably for the last 40 or 50 years yeah so it,
3: yeah that's yeah. so important Jason I'm really glad you said that I don't know if you guys remember back in 2000 1999 I led a group of people who went to to Seattle the so-called Battle of yeah. Seattle which was this yeah kind of hopeful moment where, you know, the Teamsters and Turtles, you had working class movements tied up with environmental movements and, you know, we had this fabulous protest. And I really felt at the time that there was this movement that was bringing together working people uh, just like the people you were talking about and environmental groups in what looked like it might be a very large, powerful, transformative movement. And what happened? A year later, 9-11 happened and the entire narrative of the world changed and it moved toward the the political elites, just like the Israeli elites today, who are facing their own kind of um, class and civil war. They were, um, they used the story of terrorism, the narrative of terrorism to basically destroy that movement, which was so promising, you know, of labor and environment coming together and it just died. It died overnight. And um, so that's what most, I mean, I'm mentioning this current Israeli uh, thing because it sort of evokes for me the power of, um, you know, the language of warfare. And as you point out, Jason, of terrorism as a way to try to defuse and divert Mm -hmm. people from the real chains and prisons that that are, you know, um, Mm -hmm. imprisoning them and destroying them. And so in the name of um, preventing terrorism. We're subjecting ourselves to a a kind of economic and environmental terrorism that is, um, you know, much, much greater and much worse than, um, uh, you know, the, the language of terrorism. That's part of a cultural discussion itself, which has simply become a language for diverting the population from the real issues. I mean, I don't justify killing innocent people, but you know, the, the real terrorism in the world has basically been operated by capitalist states who have used death squads from El Salvador mm-hmm. to Angola to basically, you know, su- subject them to state driven violence to ensure that the companies in the West or the economic powers of the West have used the global South to basically use their resources and their labor uh, for, to extract, you know, the wealth from these people. So, so, and the language of terror, I mentioned this because we're right now, you know, Israel is saying this is their 9-11 yeah. from, a, from a kind of cultural kind yeah. of way of diverting the, the, the issues that are so fundamental to what's happening in the Middle East and inside Israel and Palestine. Terrorism is, again, just like when when that movement in the United States was, was uprooted by the language and and the uh, sort of the the political uses of of terrorism, war on terrorism. We're seeing another version of it and it's horrifying and we should mobilize people against it so that people understand that the terrorism that's being committed is, is like in the Middle East. When you see this genocide of, you know, 16, 12 year old, 14 year old, you know, Palestinian kids, um that's the kind of terrorism it's being inflicted by israel by the and the israelis of course are simply in many ways an outpost of the pentagon i mean as i said the israeli um, economy and military is basically a, a a subsidy from the american military and it's being used to um basically produce the narrative of terrorism that allows this continuing Um, kind of imprisonment of the world in this global capitalist prison that we're suffering from.
0: Tucson, do you want to finish your point? I'm sorry if I interrupted you. No, it's
2: all right. Um, Uh, I wanted to thank you for expanding my definition of extinction.
3: Oh, yes.
2: I think that's a really important part of the book. Um, I realized as I was reading it, you know, I don't know if it makes sense, but if a person was attempting to unalive themselves, um, they may shoot themselves, but they may not die. They may just wake up in a hospital bed with the consequences of having shot themselves. So I think it is a form of denialism when we think of extinction as death. You outlined a, a number of possible outcomes that are extinction, but are not death. And I just wanted to ask you to speak to that.
3: Well, I'm so glad you noted that um, because it is important. I mean extinction of course in its ultimate form is the destruction of all life and I, I want to emphasize that includes animal. I mean, I'm a great lover of animals and I think the kind of human arrogance that the planet exists to and you know for humans as against the thousands and thousands of species that are the animal species that were Going extinct every day. I mean, there is a form of extreme extinction that we really are facing. But at the same time, you're exactly right to say that the notion of extinction it should be understood in a much larger sense. There are there are a number of people, the philosophers and others, who are writing about extinction and talking about forms of essentially, um, they're forms of extinction that are sort of like you say, where you wake up from what appears to be a kind of death, where you stop. Living fully, but you don't die, and these are forms of collective, global um, kind of uh, uh, sort of restraints on human abilities to grow and to develop in ways that fulfills people's basic needs and basic humanity to become creative, you know, socially nourishing communities, and so we're facing a, a spectrum of of kind of futures in which the full development of people is massively restrained where people will many people will survive. But under conditions that are extremely suboptimal where they're suffering from um, greater restraints than we're familiar with. but they involve economic poverty, they involve environmental limitations of all kinds, they involve, I mean, they basically simply subject the future of humanity and life to constraints that you say, it's like waking up in a hospital collectively, where we all wake up and say, we're not only in a prison, we're in a hospital bed, and we're alive, but we're not able to exercise, you know, structurally, systemically, we're not able to. Act as if we're fully alive people because the conditions of the hospital we're in and the conditions of our own energy are such that we're not able to, you know, sort of act out our potential. So I'm glad you pointed that out because it is an important part of the book to say that extinction is um, it's not a single I mean, it's not just one nuclear war that destroys everything. That there, there is. That's definitely. I mean, Ukraine could easily, given the amount of tactical nuclear weapons that have been lined up on the Russian border, it's very easy to imagine an all-out nuclear war coming out of Ukraine or out of, for example. I think that the the Cold War with China, which could very much heat up around Taiwan, I really worry about that. That could become an all-out nuclear war as well. So. We do have to worry about complete extinction. Um, probably a hundred nuclear weapons might well create a nuclear winter, actually, which would um, mm-hmm. largely destroy human potential and life. But then, as you suggest, there are all kinds. There's a spectrum of extinction, which is discussed um, around, you know, in the book, where there's all these sort of levels of, um, you know, cutting off of the human potential and of society, where you're not suffering total extinction, but, but essentially, um, you know, repressing human development in such a serious way that it kind of feels like you're going extinct, even though that there will be survival.
0: Pascal
1: One of the things that I, I, I uh, wanted to talk about in terms of organizing the force that will be necessary to change these realities is particularly who are you counting on to be the foot soldiers for this movement as we know as leftists the traditional kind of bailiwick of left politics oh we have to organize the working class we have to organize the working class blah 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 and one of the things that i have always found kind of uh, fascinating about the frankfurt school philosophers is how one of the things that drives their analysis their kind of you know marxist plus analysis of american capitalism is from the belief that the, the accoutrements that come out of the New Deal has derevolutionized the working class in the West and made them literally impossible as a force to challenge the uh, the, uh, the initiatives of capitalism. So with that in mind, that question to ask you is that who exactly would you find to be the ones to implement the, stri- the strategies necessary to challenge capital? To make these very drastic changes, this is, and I, and I also would say that capital is not going to make these alterations without a fight or without a pressure.
3: Oh, so, no question about that. Yeah. Well, that's such a great question. Thank you. Um, thank you for raising it. And it's obvious you know, obviously the most important question in many ways is how are we going to create this change, and who's going to be the foot soldiers? Because those. Those are the people that are going to save us from whatever form of extinction we're, we're coming up against. So, you know, again, going back to the abolitionist movement, you know, the foot soldiers there were, like I say, an extremely um, wide and surprising array of different kinds of people. And, I mean, it included people. It, it wasn't just black and slaves. It wasn't just white socialists. It wasn't just um it was an enormous array of different kinds of activists and people in different communities and people i mean even like somebody like douglas you know he was a global actor he was working with the um you know the the railway to get slaves out of the south he was working with lincoln on emancipation he was a political activist he worked with garrison on some socialist issues so you know what we try when we do this analysis of abolitionism, we argue that part of the lesson of that is we can't afford to be doctrinaire or formulaic about who, who the foot soldiers on the ground are likely to be because they've got to come from a lot. You know, we're talking about such a broad, deep, you know, global systemic crisis, which is impacting virtually everybody. Um, It's really a very small number of elites who are driving the problem and a very large number of Um, potential foot soldiers who are taking the hit and are suffering. So I, I mean, I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but again, if you look, it's worth going back to look at the history of abolitionism to see who did become the foot soldiers of that movement. And I don't mean it was a perfect movement, but there are lessons there of how many different kinds of movements and different kinds of activists, which included working class people Um, poor people, but included, um, you know, highly educated and wealthier white people. It included, you know, cultural, economic, and um, other kinds of activists who were able to find common ground in trying to, you know, they all were recognizing a common humanity and morality. So in terms of The foot soldiers here, you know, um, Jason mentioned that I've done an earlier book called Welcome to the Revolution, where I take some of these ideas here, which is that there is, I think, a fundamental problem with the way the left in the West today, particularly in the United States, is thinking about the foot soldiers, um, because the left has pretty much abandoned class politics, it seems to me. I mean, the left has moved um, to kind of a kind of siloed identity politics which Agreed. is around um you know re- anti-racist we, we talked about that earlier uh, yeah. jason mentioned it um anti-racist anti-sexist um you know lgbt driven movements which are all very important obviously but which when they are organized in ways that essentially separate these different communities who are suffering from certain common forms of uh, repression and control. Because after all, again, it's a small number of, um, you know, groups of institutions and people that are controlling everybody and subjecting them to this kind of prison and hospital situation we're talking about. So it seems to me that, that bringing people the foot soldiers together is bringing together all these different communities and there's no orthodox marxist formula or any other ideological formula other than one that recognizes that the power driving the fuel driving this death system because it is a death system um although death again sort of the way we talked about forward with extinction is a relative term i mean you can die You know all out of many paces in many different ways but we're all subjected to this death system and so there is the foot soldiers have to come from many many different sectors of that system and i think that um one of the big problems is that the identity movements have undermined the class movements to a very large degree Mm, recognize the ways in which people who are black and white and working people Um, share a lot of common interests or the way in which particular identity groups are, you know, have share very common problems that identity movements often put them into competition around for scarce resources or movements of identity. For example, you know, what people call girl boss capitalism, which says, let's just bring women into the, you know, into the corner office of the CEO and have as many women up there as men, as if that's going to be a solution for, you know, millions of women or um, I mean, you know, in the in the Obama years, Obama, unfortunately, embraced so much of the, the economic framework is that, you know, the the difference between racial, you know, black elites, the well black wealth and classes and black poor classes expanded during the the um, and has continued to expand, of course, since Obama, but we have. I think, a kind of organization of the left that needs a lot of rethinking and a lot of reworking and bringing, you know, like I said, the Battle of Seattle, which brought together movements that have been seen as very antagonistic, you know, working class movements with environmental movements. Workers have traditionally seen climate activism as taking away their jobs. And we saw the development of this Movement that was bringing together these antagonistic forces in common cause and you know, it took it took 9-11 and terrorism to sort of Try to dismantle that movement, but I think you know that you, you can't ever fully exter- you know extinguish those movements because they're so deeply, you know Destroying the life possibilities of so many different communities different groups of people so I remain hopeful that you're seeing new kinds of connections being made and that they will, I think the younger generation is connecting climate issues with the violence in their schools and the violence they see, um, you know, around them in the society and in, in the world. And, you know, the fact that they're dealing with, you know, still the repercussions of the financial crisis of 2008 and are seeing, you know, Really, really, you know, the ways in which Silicon Valley um, kinds of capitalism is going to replace workers with, um, you know, AI and uh, other kinds of robots and so forth. So, I mean, it's just such a a crisis that's spreading across all these different communities. And I, I do feel like young people have a particularly important role to play because they're always, you know, movements have always, um, you know, depended on... The creativity of young people who have not been as deeply indoctrinated and are open to to learning and thinking in new ways. And so I think the young are, you know, bringing together a lot of these kinds of um, economic, racial, environmental, military things. I mean, it's just growing, and there are an awful lot of forces against them. But I see possibilities here. I have some hope for the students that I work with. The kinds of courses that I teach on subjects we've been talking about just find a lot of fertile ground in among a really broad range of young people. So um, very diverse young people, who uh, both racially, economically, and gender-wise, and so forth. So I do see some hope here, and uh, but it takes an enormous amount of work.
0: Well, I do do want to ask you one last question as we're coming up on the hour, and I want to say again thank you so much for for hanging out with us this evening and know us a little later where you are. Yeah. Uh, in the book, you discuss the uh, elite control that the media has um, controlling narratives around climate denial. For some time now, we've been warned of the pandemics since the bird flu that could cause massive deaths. We had that, and to some degree, we're still dealing with the many mutations of the uh, COVID-19 virus. The lab leak discussion seem to obfuscate global capitalism's role in these types of pandemics how should we discuss covid-19 or uh, the coming of more of these types of viruses when so many americans are wedded to this idea of uh, of a lab leak
3: yeah this is a great question and you know the book about a third of it deals with the climate issues a third with the military issues and a third with public health and pandemics so pandemics are um, of course capitalism is a foundation of the problems of all these um, three things i just mentioned but you know i learned a lot as i was writing this about the history of pandemics which are is really closely tied to the development of capitalism you know the mm-hmm. pandemics of um you know whether it's cholera or tuberculosis or um, all these early 19th century capitalist um, diseases mm-hmm. um, which basically killed you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people brought into the cities and you know living you know in dangerous and um extremely um you know unhealthy conditions and no public health um, provided for them so there's a long history of pandemics before covid19 which are very clearly i mean when charles dickens was writing about poverty in london he was writing about the obvious forms of that of disease uh that was you know spreading among working people um, in industrial industrializing capitalism in, in London. And, you know, capitalism is, as I said, environmentalism, death environment is much larger than just climate change per se. So when you talk about capitalism, you're talking, and we talked about this with the climate problem of, that Jason mentioned, of people fleeing land because uh, it's un, uninhabitable and... Yeah. So, what happens is that capitalism keeps, you know, we're seeing this in the Amazon right now, where, Mm. you know, Cargill and all these huge companies that are, you know, in, you know, in bed with American, you know, military and political leaders to basically take every bit of, you know, timber they can out of the Amazon, which is one of the great reservoirs of, um, you know, carbon absorption on the planet. And um, so. We um, we we when you go into places like the Amazon and you basically strip it of its natural, uh, you know, of the trees and the the plant life and the ecology of these wild about half of the world has been wild wilderness and uninhabitable capitalism is in a project is a project to basically. Uh, You know, saying all of the planet deserves to, you know, to be part of humans and the humans are able to develop it in ways that will extract profit from all the resources, uh, all the animal species, all the plant species, all the people. And so pandemics occur when um, capitalists go into these new areas and basically, you know, uh, essentially... Um, mingle with animal species and plant species, especially animal species, which carry um, various kinds of viruses, which um, then spread to humans and create the kinds of pandemics that we we see in COVID-19. So, I mean, I think we're facing a future um, as capitalism keeps and, you know, as climate change keeps um, intensifying the competition for land and resources, you're going to see more and more you know, public lands being given away, this is part of the corporate welfare system, to mining, timber, logging companies, and so forth that are not only doing enormous environmental damage, they're they're creating enormous public health risks for the, for the world. Because when you go into these parts, these huge parts of the world that have been basically protected, preserves from, you know, human, you know, Occupation and industrialization and so forth. You're now just taking all those doors away. I mean, the the imperatives of this system are saying we're going everywhere. You know, you're not going to be able to stop us from going to all parts of the world. And they're they're not only going to destroy so many plant and animal species that have survived, you know, on their own so long, but they're going to you know, both infect those animal species and take diseases from them and create probably a tsunami of Mm. COVID-19, you know, we're already seeing avian flu, we're seeing uh, all kinds of kind of related, -related, COVID-related viruses. And again, part of the problem of capitalism and part of the solution to the problem, I'm glad you raised this, is about public health, is, you know, everybody understands that public health is incredibly important I mean the United States had over a million people dying from COVID uh, mm-hmm. by far the greatest percentage and you know it reflected the fact that private you know American health is devoted to profit so you know the the pharmaceutical companies and the medical system is designed to treat things that are chronic conditions um, which they can sell on a daily basis well pandemics But they're not oriented toward public health, which is organized in a way to, first of all, to provide access for everybody, whatever their income. And secondly, it provides uh, everybody. I mean, the only reason we did it, we're able to get through um, COVID at all was that it was public investment in the public goods of, um, you know, NIMH and NIH, which developed the rmna technology for the covid vaccine so whatever you know ways we got out of covid19 was through the kind of public investment in um you know the government's public health laboratories and research which developed it wasn't pfizer and moderna who developed the mrna technology for the vaccine they simply commercialized the, the findings that were developed by public um Health, you know, um, institutes in in Washington, and that's sort of a little a little story about, you know, the what's the problem of capitalism is about um, commodifying, privatizing all of capital, all services. You don't want public services. You don't want public transportation, public health, public schools, public, um, you know, gardens. You want everything done under a corporate private model. That's a recipe. For environmental disaster and for public health disaster, because if you don't have a public health system and you have a medical system basically um, organized for profit, um, you know the the we are basically setting up a recipe for a pandemic-driven world. And so, you know, maybe one of the hopeful possibilities of COVID-19 is that people will come to understand that the only way people got through the the most recent you know, versions of COVID-19 was the mobilization of a public health. Now we have a the Republican party, which is a anti-science and anti, you know, super anti-public health, public. Mm-hmm. you know, you have this kind of libertarian streak. It's hypocritical because they are happy to have large amounts of government money. As I said, capitalism is about taking public money and using large governments to fund corporate profit endeavors and to make it possible militarily around the world and to make it possible by exploiting environmental um, public resources. So it's really the whole idea of capitalism is a contradiction because it's really not about the private market. It's about taking public funds uh, and public resources and simply redirecting all of it to um, large concentrations of private capital and power um, for their uses. And so, in some sense, what we're talking about all through this is very simple. It's taking public, you know, resources, all the, the, the funds and resources and labor and creativity of humans, and rather than having it extracted and, you know, enriching a small elite of the population, I mean, literally, a, f- a few people have more wealth than pe- all the people in Latin America or Africa or many parts of Asia. Uh, it's just such a basic you know, sense of fairness and equity and common sense that if the public is going to fund a system, we need an economy of public goods, which really basically you know, directs the um, the value of those public investments back to the interests of the people. It's just such a simple idea. And so the book develops this idea that the, 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 the alternatives to our notion of capitalism are so clear and simple in a way, which is that capitalism is being funded by the public and is being you know mobilized through the labor of the public and the, the tax money of the public. And so it's only just basic common decency, fairness, and sense to have um, the public benefit from its own um, its own resources and its own um, labor.
0: You have anything you want to add to that, Pascal or Tucson?
2: No, that was really good.
0: <laughs> that was the mic drop moment. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you know,
3: you guys are great. I'm really glad to know about you. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. And um, I can just, I mean, I, the first time I've talked with you, but um, I can just sense the creative sense of, um, you know, really making new connections and rejecting, you know, traditional orthodoxy. So I really appreciate you guys and really thank you for having me on. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll be able to have New conversations in the future. I'm a inveterate author, so I'm on my 27th book right now. I'm writing a book about fascism and democracy, Ooh. and then a new book coming out about what I call sociocide, which I've written a book called Sociopathic Society, and I'm showing that the sociopathy, the sort of antisocial character of society, is mm-hmm. getting to the point of what I call sociocide, which is where the basic bonds that you know allow people to connect with each other in a society are now being threatened by a lot of the same forces that we're talking about but um, in a much more detailed way in which social relationships are being compromised and torn apart so we i I would guess we could have a one wonderful-
0: I want to talk to you about that because yeah. I, I have house guests right now and we definitely <laughs> been having uh, conversations about the bay area and
3: really oh yeah you
0: know rising crime and you right. know kind of a, a sociopathy uh, yeah. In the people because it's not like you know you're you're robbing you're not breaking out that window because the baby's crying. <laughs> you know, not everybody's doing that. so there is a, a weird uh, yeah. coldness that we're seeing in in a lot of the, the
3: well, I think you might Jason, you might enjoy my book. Uh, which I did right before the Welcome to the Revolution book called Sociopathic Society," where I argue that you know you can build societies like the United States, which are fundamentally sociopathic, they're antisocial, the fundamental values and the systems are fundamentally uh, working against the survival of the society and the relationships of the people that make up that society. So I think we could have some very intriguing you know important conversations on that theme. Um, which are related to the extinction. It's another way of thinking about extinction, of course, as well, the kind of breakdown of social life, um, you know, sort of into the Hobbesian concept of a, a kind of world in which people are simply fighting day to day. I wrote a book called The Wilding of America, which is one of the best sellers. And it's um, its about, you remember the wilding yes. incident of, yeah, yeah.
0: Central Park, yeah, in the
3: tr- Yeah, so I use that as a metaphor for thinking about the whole society engaged in a kind of economic and cultural wilding, which is breaking people apart, breaking relationships, basic, basically creating the conditions of a sociopathic society. And I think you'd enjoy that book as well. So um, I'll look forward, if you guys ever get interested in, uh, I, I just really appreciate your interest and thank you for it. And uh, thank you for do, you know doing your program. I'm really glad to know about it and we'll, uh, Tell, tell my uh, friends and colleagues
0: about it.
1: Absolutely. Appreciate you being a guest on our show.
3: Thank
0: you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Professor Durber, and you have a very good night. Thank you. You too. Thanks a lot. Thank that you. is Professor Charles Durber. He has a new book out, Dying for Capitalism, How Big Money Fuels Extinction, and what we can do about it wherever you are listening or watching this show. There are links in the description that take you right to the purchase of the book. Pascal Robert, how do you feel about that talk?
1: That well, was a very interesting conversation. I liked his book. I liked his subject matter. And I think he was very adept at answering some of the questions we came up with.
0: I just want everyone listening to know this. I'm gonna I'm gonna be very transparent, as my co host always says. I was gonna take this interview on by myself. And as I started reading the book, I got Toussaint is the environmentalist of the crew.
2: Hello and we
0: never ever unless she books it talk about the environment so the fact that we had a book that mentioned the environment i was like if i don't i i I reached out to tucson maybe what four hours before the show
2: yeah four or five
0: and i said tucson do you think i could get pascal this late like i totally been giving everybody all this time off i've been taking all this stuff on i feel bad i want you guys to rest and Toussaint goes, oh, there's always time to hit up Pascal. <laughs> <laughs> and I hit up Pascal and he said, hey, brother, just send me the book. So I, this is why I'm so blessed to be a part of this show with these people, because at the drop of a dime, I was able to hit them up, presented them with the book. They're like, I'm in. Toussaint sent me a message maybe two minutes after I hung up with you, Pascal. She goes, send me the book right now. I know who this guy is.
2: I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and she came up with with a lot of these questions as well. Toussaint wrote a bunch of questions. So, um, and as usual, we were men and we didn't let her ask them. She's a lady. And what is she doing not in the kitchen?
2: It's true. <laughs> um, I will say this though: it was nice chatting with um the professor before the show. Did you know he is friends with a friend of the show? Zine and Magubani?
0: Of course, they're both in Boston. Right. Right. They're both in Boston.
1: They're both in the sociology department.
0: Oh, double whammy. Yep. So, yep. And, and you know we need to get on Zine because she didn't tell him about the show. She,
1: and no, <laughs> she says she watches every episode.
0: So Zena, if you're watching episode. this episode, <laughs> Zena? We
1: coming
0: for you? Yeah, I'll leave the rest for the champagne room. But you know how the rest of that ends. Zena. <laughs> If that is your real name.
1: I'm pretty sure that's your real name.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she could have changed it like Kiyaka Maka Sajaka, Taylor, whatever her name is. Kiyaka Maka she changed her
1: name? I don't know. Is that really her name? I wouldn't be surprised. Really? Don't ask me why.
0: My daughter's name is Jayla. They screwed up her name at the hospital in 1998. You think Kiyaka Maka? The parents parent said all that in 65 when she was born.
1: No comment, man. <laughs> in the champagne room. In the champagne room.
0: <laughs> well, thank you guys for watching the show. Once again, tickets are on sale to the book launch November 18th. It's going to be a really nice, fun, intimate meet and greet the link to the champagne room is up. Will you be joining us, Pascal?
1: Yeah, man. I'm coming in for a few. I got to come on oh, in. Oh,
0: my goodness. That means that you just want to see us play horrible videos.
1: Oh, is that what's
0: going on? <laughs> so did he also confuse...
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Remember when Zine did this? Zenae thought uh, Paul and Touré were the same person.
1: Like, All white-skinned Americans
2: were. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. <laughs>
0: Once again, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. We're going to see you in the champagne room. Give us a few minutes to get ready. And we are out. Is out.